This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media in the South, we're delighted to welcome a great American, a patriot, and a leader advancing principled solutions. Scott Taylor re-enlisted in the U.S. Navy after September 11, 2001. In 2005, Scott was sent to Baghdad as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Scott served as a Navy SEAL sniper. Scott was severely injured while on a combat mission and was medevaced out of Iraq into Germany, then eventually back to the United States. Scott Taylor used his GI Bill education benefits to earn a bachelor's and master's degree in the field of international relations from Harvard University's Extension School. Scott Taylor was elected to the Virginia House of Delegates and served from 2013 through 2017 and then to the U.S. Congress in 2016, defeating a 16-year incumbent. Indeed, we are truly honored that Honorable Scott Taylor serves on the leadership board of International Leaders Summit and is co-chair of the forthcoming 4th Jerusalem Leaders Summit in Israel and the inaugural Dubai Leaders Summit in the United Arab Emirates. And without further delay, we welcome to America's Roundtable a true American patriot, Congressman Scott Taylor. Welcome and a good morning to you on September 11, 2021. Welcome, Congressman Taylor. Good morning to, to all of you, uh, all your listeners, and of course you too. I always appreciate spending time with you and, and, uh, and being on the show. Thank you very much indeed, Congressman Taylor. Today is September 11, 2021. It marks the 20th anniversary of that solemn and tragic day when terrorists hijacked four commercial airlines and killed nearly 3,000 individuals targeting the World Trade Center in New York City, the Pentagon, and individuals who lost their lives on United Flight 93. Over 90 countries lost citizens in all the attacks. The 9-11 attacks remain the deadliest terrorist attack in history. Congressman Scott Taylor, from your perspective, how did the terrorist attacks on September 11 redefine America? And as 20 years have passed us by, are our fellow Americans transitioning into a false sense of security while we may be seeing a return of global jihad? That's an excellent question. Um, Let me preface it by saying I think that September 11th in 2001 changed my life forever, changed the country's life forever, and quite frankly, changed the world, uh, not forever, but certainly contributed to a change in, in the way the world works and is going to be for quite some time. Um, you know, when, when you, in regards to our country, obviously, you know, uh, things that like Department of Homeland Security, a lot more security has, has sprung up, security apparatus for the nation, sometimes um, in a good way sometimes in an overbearing way that reduces people's liberties and has minimal marginal uh, effect on actually preventing terrorism. 
um, with with big government. I think first and foremost, it's it's enlarged the United States government as far as the security apparatus. There have been uh, no massive terrorist attacks on U.S. soil like that. So indeed, uh, folks who are on the front lines of preventing this every single day, whether it be in Homeland, whether it be in FBI, whether it be uh, military, foreign personnel, they have certainly helped and done their job in, in thwarting potential terrorist attacks and identifying those who would wish us harm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are negative things um, like like the budget for the security apparatus, like everything from government surveillance on U.S. citizens to how you board an airplane. There are definitely some positives and negatives. And quite frankly, as you know, as a former member of Congress, I understand the, the necessary need for oversight to really go through some of these programs and have a, a realistic view of how they've either helped or, or not helped the country and kept us safe. And oftentimes in Congress and with bills, it's very difficult to pick certain pieces of a program and get rid of them. But I think it's absolutely necessary. There are some things that we should absolutely keep. And there are other things that we shouldn't be spending money on because it's just not worth it. So I think it's definitely changed us in that sense. It's changed the psychology of, of American people and, and our, our view towards jihad and terrorism and, and security as well. Uh, you know, a lot of Americans have given up some, a lot of their liberty and are okay with giving up their liberty um, to be more secure. I'm always skeptical of that, of course, just by, by nature. Um, but it certainly has changed this nation. And are we getting lulled into a sense of security? I think the, for the vast majority of Americans, the answer would be yes, because, you know, let's face it, people are they're going about their daily lives. They're not in this world. They're not cognizant of any direct or indirect threat that might be emanating from, you know, some emirate uh, over in the Middle East or South Asia. But there are definitely still people who want to wage global jihad. There are people who are motivated, inspired by what just happened in Afghanistan. Uh, and so there's no doubt that uh, we have to be uh, ever vigilant because global jihad, whether we like it or not, is, uh, is here. It's here and it's, it's here to stay for quite some time. Following the September 11 attacks in which nearly 3,000 innocent civilians lost their lives, our U.S. military went to Afghanistan to capture Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda terrorist group members who were responsible for the horrific September 11 attacks. And after 20 years of U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, 2,448 American soldiers who died in Afghanistan and many more who were injured, the Biden administration ended up in a very chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. The Taliban was removed from power in 2001 by the U.S. military, just took over Afghanistan, while the escape of U.S. citizens and Afghans at risk has not been completed. Terrorists attacked the airport in Kabul, which killed over 180 people, including 13 American service members killed and 15 wounded. Congressman Taylor, could you kindly share with us about this horrific chain of events? Your question is, is twofold. The first thing is, you, you mentioned the lives lost. Look, I, I personally have listened to American Grace play on the bagpipes more than I wish on anyone. I've lost many of my friends, uh, to include a best friend who my son is named after. You, you always wonder if their sacrifice was worth it. You question that. The families question that. It's, it's true. Uh, I will tell you that you know those those folks that I know personally, they felt they felt that they were doing what was best for this nation to keep them safe for their families, and I, I don't think that they would have had it any other way in terms of not going over there. 
Uh, that being said, yes, over, over 20 years, I think that, uh, that we've had some failure in leadership to uh, properly articulate what we were doing over there, what the goal was, uh, what are conditions to potentially withdraw or leave? What's the end state? I just think that you've had for, for 20 years, you've had folks at the highest levels of government who have really failed to, to talk about that and, what, and, and articulate a vision of what that looks like, which of course led to a lot of waste, a lot of not necessary spending, a lot of tried to, uh, nation building. They were just moving forward. And you've had you know, numerous presidents who have sort of go, gone along with this. It's easy for me too to look back and say and say these things and an and armchair quarterback. I understand that, but there's no question that that somebody at, at high levels over the years should have articulated a better vision and strategy to to both keep terrorism from growing on those lands that could potentially uh, harm our country or our interest, and, but at the same time reducing wasteful spending and not you know not trying to nation build. Why I say that is I agreed with President Trump and and trying to to figure out a way because there wasn't a good vision or articulated strategy for what we had, the behemoth that we had going on there to sort of draw down, but also have the ability to smack any potential upstart terror, terrorism groups. Uh, and so Biden sort of continued that with withdrawing people, but there's a massive difference in how that went down. And I think the, the Biden administration now tries to blame the Trump administration for, for the deal. Uh, let's say, for example, that deal was exactly the way that Biden administration described it, which it wasn't. But if they, you know, the way they did, Biden was not beholden to anybody's deal, only if that was passed through the Senate as a treaty, as, as we know, uh, via the Constitution. But the reality is Biden was no more beholden to any deal from a previous a predecessor than President Trump was on the Iran deal, which was not at all. He was not beholden to it, right? But the way that this went down and the way that they, they sat in a room political leaders and the military leadership and decided on the framework of leaving and the president saying we're out by August 31st, this is your troop level number was insane to me. Any military person, quite frankly, anybody with a little bit of common sense understands when you're, when you're retreating or removing or, or withdrawing, whatever the word you want to say, you're very vulnerable, whether you're a platoon or you're a whole army, it's extremely vulnerable. And oftentimes you have to surge troops to, to provide security for the people who are leaving. So clearly, if you want to move out civilians uh, or, and, and or allies, you, you hold the airports, you hold the borders, you hold any safety corridors, you get those people out, and then you slowly withdraw the military safely and securely, and then they're out. The exact opposite happened here. And it's, it's absolutely baffling. I'm, I'm quite frankly, I'm ashamed of how it happened. I'm ashamed of military leaders who, who, even though they may have been given a framework by the politicals to say, this is your time frame, this is your amount of troops, they knew via military doctrine, you know, military doctrine for thousands of years, you know, it says when, you know, when you're retreating, you're, you're very vulnerable. They knew this was wrong. And it's really baffling to me that someone didn't stand up and say, Mr. President, and I don't mean, I don't mean publicly. But I mean, even privately and said, I'm going to resign because this is against everything I've ever learned in military doctrine. This is the wrong way to do things. We can't do this safely and securely and still get American citizens out and our military out and our allies. And, and I'm going to resign if we move forward. That did not happen. In fact, no one has resigned yet. And what you had was you had um, Secretary Blinken actually blamed American citizens said, well, we've been sending these messages out, uh, you know, for months to tell American citizens out. And I will tell you, 
I even had a couple, you know, Republican donors say to me, well, I thought, why, why were they still there? I thought they were getting these messages. And let me say this to you and your audience. If you have ever served, if you've ever worked in countries like Afghanistan, like Yemen, like Iraq, any countries that are semi-permissible or not permissible at all because they're potential war zones or they could, you know, evolve into one quickly, the State Department always sends out those messages. They always say, don't come here if you're American. If you're American, if you're here, leave. But those messages are not meant for people who are working for the embassy, directly for the government, or even indirectly for the government. So for example, when this all went down, I, had, I spoke to numerous owners of companies who were trying to get their people out, 100, 200, 500 people. These are government contracts with contracts for the US government with hundreds, really thousands of people that were still working for the US government when this withdrawal started quickly. Those text messages and those uh, tweets by the State Department for months, they're not directed at them. They're directed at normal citizens that might be visiting families or going to check, you know, for, for whatever reason, business. So it's very disingenuous of the State Department to now blame the, those um, American citizens and allies for not getting out in time. Uh, so I just, I feel like the, the way that this went down, I'm very ashamed, quite frankly, of how it went down. The Biden administration will point to the amount of people that they evacuated the reality is it was only a fraction of the of the allies or the visa holders that they should have evacuated. There are still American citizens there. And the reality is even the, the little tiny Gulf state of, of Qatar, of Qatar, they evacuated over 40,000 people. So the reality is our allies and I mean, countries like Qatar, they really stepped up. And if it wasn't for them, what would happen? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, the, the reality is our men and women, and I talked to them on the ground the whole time. It was extremely chaotic. They were doing the best that they could. You know, they were trying to save lives, save babies. Our leadership, both political and high-ranking military, gave an unreasonable, unrealistic task to our military to get to get people out in that situation. And quite frankly, I'm ashamed of how it went down. In fact, uh, we've been hearing from our allies in Western Europe, primarily from the UK and Germany and other places as well. And they too were very shocked uh, to seeing this chaotic withdrawal of Afghanistan. In fact, former Prime Minister Tony Blair of the United Kingdom basically stated that this was an imbecilic process that took place under President Biden. And uh, in fact, we hope that there will be a thorough investigation into this process, into what went wrong, and, and to avoid this in the future, because it certainly placed individuals' lives at risk. It placed uh, our fellow Americans' lives at risk, as well as our military personnel. There's no question about it. Look, you know, the Brits and the French were literally going into the city of Kabul to get their citizens to the airport because it was difficult to get through Taliban checkpoints. And the United States of America was not doing that. It's absolutely incredible. And at some point, once the suicide bomber went off, at some point, the Taliban, because we allowed them. Let me, let me, let me take one step back. The United States could have dictated how this happened, period. We did. We did, in fact, dictate how this happened. If we didn't want the Taliban to be in Kabul while we evacuated people, then we could have, we could have stopped them from doing that. If we want the Taliban to take over security, of, you know, between Kabul in the HKI, the Kabul airport, we could have stopped them to do that. But the opposite happened. We allowed the Taliban to come in. We allowed them to release 500 prisoners, most of, most of them ISIS prisoners, 
in the, in the jail in Kabul, who then most likely were involved in that suicide attack that killed American troops. We then, we then had, you know, allowed them to take security. And after that explosion, that suicide bomb, they took more security they had outside of every airport gate was a Taliban checkpoint where the United States of America had to print out manifests, any approved manifest. We had to print them out, drive them to the Taliban gate and the Taliban and negotiate with the Taliban to get approval to get either our citizens, our allies or whomever else out past their gate and through. The Brits, the French didn't take that tactic. They went and got their own citizens in the city and drove them through the Taliban gates armed, right? Armed. So they didn't ask the Taliban permission. They just got their people and, and got out. So uh, the way that we, the way that this was done by the senior levels of leadership is just embarrassing. It's absolutely, and you're right. They, we, we left our, our allies out there hanging. They had to jump into this chaos to get their people out of there. Some of their people are, as we heard a little earlier, the plane that left Kabul that, oh, the Taliban let fly, fly out, had American citizens, but also citizens from other countries who weren't able to get out in, in the chaos. And so I just keep going back to the fact that I'm ashamed of how our leadership handled this. It was insane. And, and absolutely our allies question the leadership, question the alliance, and, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I wish it wasn't like that. Indeed. In just a week's time, we will be reflecting on the significant and historic achievement of the Trump administration when President Trump hosted the foreign ministers from the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, along with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, at the White House to sign the Abram Accords, a deal to normalize relations between Israel and the two countries. This was peace through strength in action, and augmented by a focus on engaging leaders to focus on the future of the region through trade and commerce and stronger cultural, religious, and educational ties. The Trump administration, through its prudent and principled approach, placed the parochial agenda items of the Palestinian Authority on the back burner. And for our listeners, I should state for the record that the Palestinian leadership minded allegations of corruption has failed to yet hold its parliamentary and presidential elections since 2006, and that the Hamas terrorist network in Gaza is actually gaining a larger following in the Palestinian controlled areas within Israel proper. And as we know, since Joe Biden took office, the successful Abraham Accords have hit one obstacle after another. First, the administration began downplaying and undermining the Abram Accords. And then in July of this past year, the Biden administration suspended suspended the Abram Fund, which was established with the signing of the Abram Accords in the fall of 2020, to invest some $3 billion into the private sector to promote economic cooperation in the Middle East. And this would have been a wiser approach in using our resources. Congressman Taylor, from your vantage point, what would you suggest as principled steps in affirming and safeguarding the Abram Accords, which has the potential of drawing other Arab countries representing 430 million citizens in the region to establish stronger ties, normalizing relations with the Jewish state of Israel, and usher in a new era of peace and security and stability for the entire region and the rest of the world. Let me just first say, it was such a, it's a massive success that should be built upon every single day. Just a month ago, I was in Dubai, and there were two times when I'm in the elevator, and there were families in the elevator, 
And I said, where, where are you from? And I, I knew where they were from. And they were like, Israel. Right. <laughs> so I've been to Dubai a lot, right? You don't usually, you don't run into Jewish families in the, in the elevator in Dubai all the time, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing of what it's done. There are four flights, I think, uh, back and forth every, every single day from, from the Emirates to, to Israel. What a massive success that is just downplayed in the media that Biden doesn't get credit for, so he doesn't really care about. I, I, I think it's crazy. I mean, you, we should be building on this. History is full of examples of peace between nations that have uh, trade and intercourse together. They work together, they get tied economically, and then they can they build relationships where they can diffuse problems. And so, so this is an amazing, uh, amazing step that obviously has a couple of other countries have have come in. And there are other ones that are that are right, I think, for also coming in to normalization with Israel to have trade and peace and prosperity. You mentioned the Palestinian leadership or lack thereof. I've met with met with the vice then the vice president Rami Hamdullah in Ramallah, Palestine. And it was it was clear to me that they were more interested in their own power than they were advancing the prosperity of Palestinians in their territory. There were legit, absolutely, and there still are legit arguments, legit uh, topics that they can negotiate with Israel. For example, if you're an olive farmer in the West Bank and, and you, you can't export your olives without going through Israel or you can't import potential machinery that could make you more efficient with, without the same. I think that there's absolutely negotiation. If I was the leader you know, in the Palestinian Authority, I would be all over that every day, making sure that my people could have peace and prosperity, making sure that they had the ability to feed their families, to you know, have businesses. But that's not what they care about. And, and that's very unfortunate. And as you said, you know, Hamas is making inroads into the Palestinian Authority's territory. And a lot of people don't understand this. Uh, they don't understand that when you have the negotiations uh, in Israel with the Palestinians, it's not a two-party negotiation. It's not simply the Israelis and the Palestinians. It's the Israelis, it's the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and it's Hamas in Gaza. So it's three ways. And Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, they don't like each other. The leaders from the Palestinian Authority haven't been in Gaza for over a decade because they'll get killed. <laughs> so so the, the reality is there is a severe lack of leadership amongst the Palestinians. And that's unfortunate because if you had good leaders there, they could really have better relationships with Israel. They could create trade and prosperity for Palestinians that, that's desperately needed, quite frankly. Now, when you look at the Abraham Accords, the President Trump went about it a different way, which I think is smart. Instead of going through the same failed negotiations with the Palestinian uh, lack of leadership and the Palestinian Authority, and instead of just giving them money, which of course, there's a lot of corruption in their governance and doesn't trickle down to, to the Palestinians themselves. But instead of doing that, he went to the Arab states themselves, uh, like the Emirates, of course, to put tremendous pressure on the leadership of, of the Palestinians to circumvent them and say, no, we're going to normalize. We're going to have these relationships. And by the way, it's good for the Palestinians as well. And so it, it kind of really puts, it puts the leadership back against the wall. What are you doing for your own people? No one's going to care more about your kids than you care of, than you do, or the, your prosperity than you do. What are you doing for them? And so I, I actually love the approach of the Abraham Accords to create normalization with Israel all around the Middle East. And I think that it will have some secondary results uh, eventually with the Palestinians themselves, too. It will force them to come to the table and negotiate, which I think they should, for the better of Palestinians. I think that 
there should be people in the United States and the White House every single day who are doing nothing but building upon the Abraham Accords to institutionalize that relationship and get further Arab countries involved and so that they can see, and, and quite frankly, you know, what, what you guys are doing as well, which is fantastic, where you're, where you're highlighting, you're highlighting both the political and the economic positive happenings after this. And so we're going to be in Jerusalem, we're going to be in Dubai, we're going to be highlighting, we're going to be talking, we're going to be, you know, putting that in the press, of course. And so these other countries can then see that and they can see what they are missing out on and how it makes sense to normalize relations so that you can have trade, so that you can have secure more security. Because let's face it, there's no better country in the Middle East on security issues or intelligence issues than Israel, right? Absolutely. So if you're the UAE, you want that too. Not only do you want to have good uh, trade relationships and political relationships, but you also want to protect your people. And if you have a good partnership with the Israelis, there's nobody better in the the Middle East. So I'm bullish and excited on the Abraham Accords. Uh, I just wish that it didn't become a partisan issue in D.C. It should not be. It should be bipartisan because it's better for the Middle East. It's better for the United States. It's better for the world. Right. And uh, another developing story in the foreign policy arena this week is Iran. America has kept strict sanctions on Iran until Obama-led Iran nuclear deal in 2015, when the administration released $1.7 billion to Iran. Then in May 2018, President Donald Trump imposed sweeping sanctions on Tehran and exited the nuclear deal. Then Biden administration returned to the table with Iran in order to revive the nuclear deal. Now, in the most recent report by International Atomic Energy Agency released this past week, the agency discovered traces of radioactive material at several sites in Iran, which were not explained by Iran, and cameras, which were supposed to monitor whether Iran was diverting nuclear material and equipment to illicit uses, some of those cameras were destroyed or damaged with recording materials missing. Congressman Taylor, what are your thoughts on U.S. foreign policy towards Iran, and how can we trust Iran's authoritarian regime, which has breached previously signed nuclear deals, continues to be a state sponsor of terrorism, and it's on the mission to enrich uranium, which can potentially be used as a nuclear weapon. Number one, let me say this first. Iran should never be able to have a nuclear weapon. We should make sure that happens. No matter who's in charge here in the United States or Israel, Iran should not have a nuclear weapon. If you do, you're going to have a, a nuclear arms race. The Saudis are going to get the, nu- the nukes. You know, the Turks may get their own. There may be some other countries that we don't even think about right now that might, uh, that might get uh, the nukes. There's no way that we should allow them. That's number one. When you looked at President Obama's foreign policy uh, in regards to Iran, it was absolutely too weak, way too weak. They were doing anything to get a deal. They were bending over backwards and and letting Iran get away. And they were getting their lunch ate by the Iranians, who were good negotiators. Historically, they've been good negotiators. And the reality is, in in the Middle East, you have to have strength or fear. If you have neither one, then you get no you, you get you get no respect. To get respect, you have to have strength or fear. If you don't have strength or fear, you get no respect in the Middle East. So when you're negotiating there, it, you have to do it from a position of strength. Then you, of course, you had the Trump administration, who absolutely were in a position of strength. As you said, they put crushing sanctions, which of course were working for sure. My only critique with the Trump administration is when you use those crushing sanctions. When you use every tool, that, uh, a foreign policy tool that you have to show a position of strength, 
and you're backing, you're backing a country into a corner, you have to give a, a pressure relief valve, right? The whole reason why you're doing that is to change behavior. You're trying to change their behavior from starting terrorism across the region, which they were still doing and doing even more of under the Obama administration because it made their position stronger at the negotiation table. Of course, they're going to do it. If you're Iran, it makes sense. Trump administration, they, they tried to stop that. The problem is if you, if you back, I mean, think about an animal. You back an a- animal in a corner and give it no place to go, what's going to happen? It's going to attack. It's going to lash out. And so my only critique with the Trump administration was, yes, you were doing everything right to increase your position for negotiation. You were doing everything right to stop Iran from getting a nuclear bomb, which is great. But what's the goal after that, right? You're, you're, you're pushing, pushing, pushing. What's the goal? And, and so what's the pressure relief valve? What, what were the signals to Iran to say, okay, all this pain can stop or can be reduced if you do this? And I didn't see that out of the Trump administration. That's my only critique. Now, now you have the Biden administration who is, <laughs> they've done two things wrong, right? Number one, they're too weak. You have a lot of the same people from the Obama administration that are in there. I think they understand that the conditions, now that the, uh, the Trump administration removed the Iranian deal, I think that they understand that what the deal that they had proposed and, and signed of the Obama administration is not realistic anymore. I think they understand that, but they're still too weak, right? And, uh, and then at the same time, they're also removing Trump administration policies for political reasons. So, for example, the Trump administration put the Houthis in Yemen, who were supported by Iranians, on the terror list, right? But Biden administration comes in and they immediately remove that, that designation. Now, whether you agreed or disagreed with putting the designation in the first place, once it's already there, why the hell wouldn't you get something for it if you're going to remove it? And they didn't. They just removed some sanctions. They removed the terror designation for the Houthis and didn't get anything for it. So you have this dichotomy or you have this double problem in the Biden administration of them trying to pursue the same foreign policy the Obama administration pursued, which is weakness with the, in regards to Iran. And then they also are trying to remove all the policies that, that had teeth and strength in there from the Trump administration. So right now, I, I, you know, I think that our, our foreign policy is severely lacking in, in, in terms of Iran. And Iran, they have no incentive to abide by that, that deal with the Obama administration deal. They have no incentive to stop fomenting terrorism in the region right now. They're the ones in a position of strength. And uh, again, until the United States gets back in a position of strength and then articulates what we want them to do or not do and get that policy enacted by them, we're going to continue to see what we see. We're, we're going to continue to see problems in Syria, problems in Lebanon, problems in Yemen, problems in Iraq, and them moving closer to being able to break out and have a nuclear bomb. Indeed, we truly appreciate your continued leadership, Scott Taylor, in all that you're doing in the private sector and what you've done through the public sector as member of Congress and the continued work that you did over these past few weeks in helping rescue American citizens and allies from Afghanistan. Scott Taylor was elected to the Virginia House of Delegates and served from 2013 to 2017 and then to the U.S. Congress in 2016. And Scott Taylor also served in the U.S. Navy SEALs. We truly appreciate your patriotic leadership. Thank you so much indeed, Scott, for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Congressman Taylor. Thanks for having me as always. 
This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Serdorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.